Well, it's great to have the kids be a part of the service, and I hope that brings some joy to your heart to watch them um, celebrate. And I hope I hope you are spending a lot of time with them this Christmas. We were just talking about on Wednesday night how Christmas is such a perfect time to do discipleship with your children, teaching them about Jesus, and you've got such a ripe opportunity every night to sit down and talk to them about the Christmas season and who Jesus is and all the great stories that we rehearse around Christmas time. Uh, and today we're going to look again at one of those stories in Matthew chapter 2. So why don't we turn together to Matthew chapter 2. Our Advent series this December uh, is a very Reformed Christmas, and uh, we're celebrating this winter the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, um, which was a movement in the church in the countries of England and Switzerland and Germany and Bohemia and beyond. And what was happening was the church was rediscovering the gospel. Which seems like a really funny thing to say. But they were rediscovering this gospel and then they were protecting the gospel with these five essential truths that stood guard. These five solas that we've been talking about. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola Gratia. Grace alone. Sola Fide. Faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone, and Soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. So this morning as we look at the story of the Magi, which is a story you've probably heard a sermon on 15, 20, 25, 50 times, some of you maybe, we're going to look at it from a little bit different angle as we ponder the second sola of the Reformation, sola gratia, which means grace alone. What was going on in the Reformation, it wasn't that the Reformers were adding something new to what the church believed. Uh, You could picture for a second, like, imagine if the gospel is a Christmas tree, okay? And for a thousand years, the church has just been hanging ornaments on that gospel Christmas tree, year after year after year, adorning it, putting all kinds of trinkets and tinsel on it. Until it's completely unrecognizable. You don't even know if there's a tree underneath there. It's just this mountain of ornaments. And whistles and bells and tinsel and baubles. Well, sola gratia is about stripping all of that stuff away. Pulling off the garland, the ornaments, the tinsel, the lights. And rediscovering the tree that lies at the center of all of this mess. How are we saved? By the ornaments, by the bells, by the tinsel, the trappings, or are we saved by grace and grace alone? December 15, 18, an up-and-comer by the name of Ulrich Zwingli was appointed the title of the People's Priest in Zurich, Switzerland. In the church's name was the Gross Munster, uh, which just means the Great Cathedral. Um, it was a really, it's still standing today. If you were to go to Zurich, you'd see it built 
building, it began to be built in 1100 and was finished in 1220. So the church had already been around for 300 years whenever he was appointed to his post. And when he entered into this station as the people's priest, he decided he was going to do something very unusual, unheard of in fact, in any church in those days. He was going to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible. From the original languages. So on January 1st, 1519, the beginning of a new year, his birthday, in fact, his very first sermon at the Gross Munster, he began preaching in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Which, if you've been here for five years, you know, coincidentally, that's the same place that I started the first week I was at College Street Baptist Church. So, kind of a fun fact. Over the next six years in Zurich, Zwingli preached what's called Lectio Continua, which means continuous reading. Just picking up where he left off the previous week, he made it all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. And it was this unadorned reading and proclaiming and preaching of the gospel faithfully week after week that brought about reformation in the country of Switzerland. And this simple, unadorned, no bells, no whistles, preaching style of Zwingli was so bizarre to the people that Zwingli says, everyone eager to hear the word of God came hurrying for my expositions so that I was quite surprised myself. Here's a man who's just preaching the plain word of God. No gimmicks, no flashy anything. And it's the plain exposition of God's word week after week that people are hurrying to church to hear. Preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. A strategy for reform so crazy it just might work. And as Zwingli and his congregation made it through the Gospels and through Acts and through Paul's epistles, they started to realize something. All of these trappings and these things that the Pope and the Catholic Church were insisting were absolutely necessary for salvation weren't even in the Bible. Praying to images of the saints, not in the Bible. Vows of celibacy for priests, not in the Bible. Penance, doing good deeds in order to make up for the bad things that you've done. Not in the Bible. Indulgences sold by the church, being able to purchase forgiveness from the church. Not in the Bible. Mandatory fasting days like Lent. Not in there. And all of this came to a head in 1522 with what has been called the infamous affair of the sausages. Yes, Zwingli, the ever... uh, controversial man, the affair of the sausages. You see, Zwingli attended a sausage party that was uh, where they were serving what's called Fasnachskekli, which is basically a Swiss funnel cake. I was looking it up online, and it's basically a Swiss funnel cake. It's got powdered sugar on it and everything. But on the side, they were serving these delicious slices of hard-smoked sausage. Now, the problem was that this party was in March on a Friday. And if you know any Catholics, you know that Fridays in March, you can't eat any meat. 
because it's Lent. And so it was with a sausage that Zwingli entered into battle with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, Stephen Nichols compares the, the problem that was going on to scaffolding. If you picture the gospel as this beautiful cathedral, right? What the church had done year by year is they built this scaffolding all around it until the entire building was engulfed in this ugly scaffolding and you couldn't even see the gospel underneath. So through the faithful preaching of God's word, week by week, Zwingli was dismantling the scaffolding that the church had built, obscuring the gospel and revealing the beautiful salvation by grace alone that lay underneath. He took apart the practice of doing penance of priests, assigning works to people in order to work off their sins. He removed the images of the saints that people were praying to instead of Jesus Christ. And greatest of all, in 1525, he eliminated the Catholic Mass. In the Mass, the Roman Church would claim that the priest, when he said the magic words, hoc es corpus meum, in uh, this is my body, that the bread literally turned into the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. And then the priest literally offered up again the body and blood of Jesus as a renewed sacrifice for your sins. And that if you didn't have this done over and over again, you would lose your salvation. Zwingli saw people clinging to a piece of bread as though that piece of bread was somehow connected to their salvation instead of Christ. And they could only cling to the bread because the Catholic Church had decided it wasn't worth wasting expensive wine on peasants, right? The body of Christ is just as good as the blood, so they don't need both. Only the priests got both. And so Zwingli threw out the Catholic Mass and replaced it with really what we do, the Lord's Supper, in its plainest sense as laid out by Paul in the Scriptures. In all of this, Zwingli was recovering the simplicity of our second central truth of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone. And so this morning, as we turn to the Christmas story once more, I want us to be struck, and I hope we will be struck, by the grace of God that's recorded in this story. A lone star summons men from afar, drawing them by grace alone to the Christ child. I mean, why should these wise men ever appear in the pages of Scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And yet here they are. Why should these people, of all people, be figurines that we set at our nativity scene every year? Grace. And grace alone. So as we ponder that this morning, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would have mercy and grace upon us this morning. Give us eyes to see and to trust and to worship and fall before Jesus, our King. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I believe our story, this familiar story, the story of the Magi, actually illustrates grace alone in at least four basic ways. And we're going to look at those together briefly. Number one, grace alone draws us to Christ. Grace alone draws us to Christ. These days, if you were to make a long journey, say a couple hundred miles, uh, what would be the first thing you would do? What would you do at the beginning of your journey? Okay, pray for a safe trip. Most of us would probably pull out our phone or our GPS, right? Those of us who still use road atlases, bless you, but most of us have no idea what we're doing. We're just following directions, right? And we plug the destination in. We know who we're going to see or where we're trying to go. We plug it into our GPS. And then we just follow the directions, right? It says, you know, turn here, we turn, turn there. Until finally that robotic voice says, you have arrived at your destination. Right? Now, the next time that you're going on a long trip, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn off your phone. I want you to wait until it gets dark outside. And then I want you to find a star in the sky. And then I want you to follow that star and let it take you to your destination. How's that going to work for you? (laughs) Oh, and also, you're not allowed to know the name of the person you're going to visit or their address. How's that going to work for you? Not well. Not well. That's the wise men here in Matthew chapter 2. The star is the only thing they have to go on. They don't know the name of the person they're looking for. They don't know where he lives. Look at verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where is he? We don't know where he is. And we also don't know who he is. All we know is we have seen 
his star. And it's funny because they roll into Jerusalem like they're asking for directions, but they don't really need directions because as soon as they leave Jerusalem, what happens in verse 9? After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The star was all that these men needed. One single solitary star placed in the heavens by the grace of God. These men didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't grow up in a town where there was a church on every corner. They had one single solitary star in the sky and that star was enough. Grace alone draws us to Christ. I wonder how you think you relate to God this morning. In the days of Ulrich Zwingli, the church was teaching that God helps those who help themselves. If you want to boil it down, that's what was going on. This is a quote from St. Bonaventure. Divine help, however, comes to those who seek it from their heart humbly and devoutly. The church taught that the Christian life was kind of like a Jacob's ladder. And as we pray and we do penance and we take the mass and we do good works and we give to the church and we take communion, God rewards our good behavior by infusing grace in us step by step as we make it one more step up the ladder to heaven. By striving, by our striving, we mount step by step until we come to the high mountain where we shall see the God of gods in Zion. Those are the words of the leading officials in the church. But if we look at the Magi this morning in Matthew chapter 2, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. We know nothing about these men. Were they devout? I don't know, probably not. Were they churchgoers? Definitely not. Were they praying men? Did they read their Bibles? Chances are they didn't even know what the Bible was. But one thing is for certain, and they make it abundantly clear, the only thing that we know about them, we have seen His star. And that star brought them all the way home. That's God's grace. Grace alone is sufficient to bring us to Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian today because you sin less than other people. God hasn't shown favor to you because you grew up in church or because your family were Christians. Every person who comes to Jesus comes in the same way that the wise men did, by grace alone. Drawn by the star, drawn to Christ by grace alone. Well, number two. Grace alone opens our eyes to the Word. Grace alone opens our eyes to the Word. So, these wise men, innocently enough, they come into Jerusalem expecting to find a newborn king. If someone landed in an airport from a foreign nation in the United States, and they said, where can I find the President of the United States? 
you'd probably recommend they look in Washington, D.C. for a start, right? It's the capital city. Well, that's why they end up in Jerusalem. They're just taking a stab at it. However, King Herod and all the chief priests and the scribes, they have Bibles. They have the scriptures. They know exactly who these wise men are seeking. The Christ. The Messiah, the son of David. So when King Herod gets them all together and they have their powwow and he asks them, where is the Christ to be born? They have it bookmarked in their Bibles, underlined, memorized. They know exactly the right answer. Without hesitation and almost unison, they respond. Chapter 2, verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They had the Bible answer. They knew exactly the right answer. But that's that. We don't hear from the chief priests and the scribes for the rest of the story. Here are some men who have devoted their lives to studying the scriptures. Who study them, who meditate on them, who memorize them, who know them backwards and forwards. But when men from the east who have no Bible, who come following a star and stumble into Jerusalem, come asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? They have the exact right Bible answer. Bethlehem. The Christ is born in Bethlehem, they say, and they return to the temple to study the scriptures some more. The Christ is born in Bethlehem. We should expect these men to be running out of the city, down the road, into Bethlehem to find the Christ. To see this great thing that they've been told, but they're blind. They have all the right answers. They know all the scriptures. They've got them memorized backwards and forwards. But when the events happen right there, unfolding before them, completely blind. The king of the Jews, the Messiah is born. And they even knew where to find him. But they were blind. Matthew chapter 2 shows us that it's grace alone that opens our eyes to the word. It's not an accident that Reformation in Zurich began in the very same fashion that it began in England last week through the Word of God. The plain reading of the Word of God. But the Catholic Church had been studying the Bible and memorizing it and meditating on it for centuries. And yet they remained blind to the truth. So what changed in Zurich? What changed with men like William Tyndale and Ulrich Zwingli? Were they somehow better than these other people in the church? No. What changed? A star. The grace of God shone on Zwingli and his congregation just like it did on the Magi. And that is all we can say. is simply God's grace. It's God's grace that opens our eyes. 
to the scripture. They heard the word, and as they heard the word, it was joined by the grace of God to open their ears and open their eyes to understand and to believe and to lead them to the place where the child was in Bethlehem. If you're a Christian this morning, you know what that feels like. You know, maybe you can remember back to that moment where maybe you had been going to church your whole life and then all of a sudden in that one sermon, as you were hearing the word of God, it just... And you believed. Well, why was it that week and not the week before or months before or years before that? It's the grace of God. Why the wise men end up in Bethlehem and not these chief priests? It's the grace of God. You see, before that moment happens, the Bible says that we're dead. We heard it from Ephesians chapter 2 earlier in the service. We're dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't hear. This is the funny thing about being a gospel minister is that week after week, it's my job to preach the good news to dead people who can't hear it. One of our Emmanuel Network pastors, Ryan Fullerton of Emmanuel Baptist Church, he's, he, he uh, wrote a book on preaching, and this is what he says, Indeed, we preach Christ crucified for sinners, but it cannot be appreciated. Dead people can't even hear the message. The total depravity of unconverted sinners makes it so that they have stone hearts when it comes to experiencing God. So what are we to do? We're to ask our Father for the Holy Spirit. He is the one who opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, where are the men and women throwing open the doors of our church and barging in and saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Let us pray. Brothers and sisters, why aren't our children who are faithfully hearing the gospel week after week from the pulpit in our Sunday school, in our children's church, why aren't they being saved by that gospel? They're dead. They can only be saved by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that God would send His grace to shine down upon them. Why aren't our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers who were so faithfully sharing the gospel with over and over again, why does it seem to just bounce off of them? We need grace. Salvation is by grace alone. It's grace alone that opens our eyes to the word. So let us pray. Number two, grace alone opens our eyes to the word. Well, thirdly, God's grace alone gives us exceedingly great joy. Grace alone gives us exceedingly great joy. So there's this juxtaposition in this story. Herod the king and all the city of Jerusalem, they hear news that it's possible the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for millennia to show up, has been born, and it says they're deeply disturbed. In fact, King Herod, who knows, he knows this might be the Christ child, has decided to take it upon himself to try to murder that Christ. That's his response. 
But then look at the response of the wise men in verse 10. I love this verse. Chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Exceedingly great joy. When the officials of the Catholic Church heard about the rediscovery of the gospel that was going on in Zurich, and that Zwingli was redirecting all of his people to put their trust in worship only upon Jesus Christ and nothing else. And he was highlighting and and glorifying the cross of Jesus. They were furious. In fact, they incited neighboring magistrates and kings of neighboring Swiss cantons to come and wage war against Zurich. But when people who are changed by the grace of God hear that everything is complete and finished in the work of Jesus Christ, and that there is nothing left to be accomplished, that their full salvation is given to them, wrapped up like a present on Christmas morning, the greatest gift God could ever give us through Jesus Christ, they respond with exceedingly great joy. Zwingli writes, For if our works merited blessedness, there would have been no need of the death of Christ to satisfy the divine righteousness. It would not be grace when sins are pardoned, for everyone could win merit. We could earn it, he says. For it must be true that no man cometh unto the Father but through Christ. Therefore, only by grace, the grace and bounty of God which he pours out upon us abundantly through Christ does everlasting happiness come. Only by grace. Who can sufficiently marvel at the riches and grace of the divine goodness whereby he so loved the world as to give up his Son for its life? This I regard as the heart and life of the gospel. This is the only medicine for the fainting soul whereby it is restored to God and itself. For none but God himself can give it the assurance of God's grace. But now God has liberally, abundantly, and wisely lavished it upon us that nothing further remains which could be desired. Unless someone would dare to seek something that is beyond the highest and beyond overflowing abundance. That is the grace of God. And when we experience that in our lives, we can only respond but with exceedingly great joy. Friend, if you're here this morning and you know your sin and you recognize and you feel the depth of your shame and your guilt before God, there is nothing left for you to do other than to turn away from those sins and believe and receive Jesus Christ who has graciously given us Himself. Jesus has died on a cross and suffered all for all of the shame and the guilt and the sin that you could ever commit, past, present, and future. There is nothing for you to add to it. God's grace alone is meant to save you. And when you find that, you will know exceedingly great joy. If you're lacking joy in your life, you should ask yourself whether you're putting your trust in something other than the grace of God. 
Are you trusting in your hard work? God owes me. I've been working hard. I've been serving him. Why isn't he doing what I want? Or maybe you're on the other side, discouraged by your failures. Nothing good's going to come of my life. Look at all the terrible things I've done. God can't love me. We need to set both of these aside and rejoice in the exceedingly great joy that we find in God's grace alone for salvation. There's nothing we can do to add to it or to take away from it. It's a gift. Grace alone gives exceedingly great joy. My fourth point this morning and finally is this. Grace alone causes us to worship. Grace alone causes us to worship. Look at how the story finishes. We Probably one of the most recognized pictures in the Bible. Number Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When the wise men reach their final destination, they find the house and they enter it into it and they've made it all the way. Grace has brought them all the way home. When they finally get there, what do they do? They fall down and they worship Jesus. They lay their treasures before the king. Brothers and sisters, this is the right motive for our worship. We don't do right things. We don't obey. We don't resist temptation so that we can somehow climb stair by stair up Jacob's ladder and earn our way in cooperation with God into heaven through our own good works. It's when we fall down in utter astonishment of who Jesus is and that by God's grace somehow we have been brought to Him that we fall down in a life of worship and laying of all of our gifts and our most prized possessions at his feet. Zwingli writes, Slaves work for reward, and lazy persons likewise, but they that have found, that have faith are untiring in the work of God. Why? Because they're sons of the house. A son has not merited by works his being the heir of the estate, nor does he toil and labor for this, that he shall become the heir. But when he was born, he was born the heir. He was the heir of his father's possessions through birth, not through merit. And when he is untiring in work, he does not demand a reward, demand a reward, for he knows that all things are his. So the sons of God, freely sons of God, Therefore, gladly and without weariness, they labor indeed. There is no work so great that they do not believe it is uh, to be accomplished by his power in whom we trust, not by our own doing. What's he saying there? He's saying, we're not slaves, we're sons. Sons don't earn the inheritance, they have the inheritance. They work hard for the estate because it already belongs to them. That's why we worship That's why we obey and we fall down in the feet of Jesus in all areas of our lives. It's because grace alone has brought us to this state where we are sons. And so we worship Jesus with our lives. In the 1500s, the main Swiss export was soldiers. 
Uh, believe it or not, the Swiss people would uh, send their young men out and they would farm them out to different countries who were at war with each other and they would sell their uh, battle-tested men to go fight in their armies. However, in 1531, Zwingli was forced to go out with one of these armies to fight to protect Zurich from an invading Catholic army that had laid siege to the city. You see, Catholic rulers in other areas of Switzerland were not happy with what was going on in Zurich. So uh, the story goes that Zwingli rode out with his men, chaplaining the army, wielding a double-edged axe or sword, some stories tell us. And he was killed on the battlefield that day. And when the victorious Catholics discovered this arch-heretic, Zwingli had been killed, they burned his body and they mixed it with dung. However, Oswald Myconius, the first biographer of Zwingli, records, records this bizarre account. He says, The enemies having retired after the third day, friends of Zwingli went to see if they could perchance find any remains of him. And lo, strange to say, his heart presented itself from the midst of the ashes, whole and uninjured. The good men were astonished, recognizing the miracle indeed, but not understanding it. Wherefore, attributing everything to God, they rejoiced because this supernatural fact had made more sure the sincerity of his heart. Now, if Zwingli were here this morning, I think he would hate that story. Uh, number one, because it's probably not true. But number two, because it attributes to him what he spent his entire ministry trying to tell people should be given and attributed to grace alone. I think Zwingli would much rather us see him as a nameless wise man. A nameless magi who by grace alone was drawn to Christ. By grace alone had his eyes open to the word. By grace alone rejoiced with exceedingly great joy as he saw the gospel pervade his congregation. And by grace alone laid down his life to worship Jesus. And really, what better way for each of us than to follow in the footsteps of the wise men, to appear upon the pages of history, simply to display what it looks like to be drawn by grace alone to Jesus Christ, to be people who fall down and worship Him and then disappear off the pages of history. Because Wingling was not about glorifying Zwingli and Chad's not about glorifying Chad and you're not about glorifying yourself. Ultimately, it's all about that child who was born in Bethlehem and worshiping and glorifying Him and the grace of God that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we pray that Your grace would reign in this place, that we would be a people who are utterly astonished by the unmerited favor of a God who would rescue sinners like us. We pray that it's this grace that would compel us to pray and would compel us to take the good news and to publish it abroad, to, to share it with everyone we know that Jesus Christ is born, the King has come, and He has died and He has been raised and we fall down and worship Him. Lord Jesus, we thank You. Come back soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.